You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Walking might seem like one of the most basic forms of exercise, but John O'Lanine thinks it's so important, so special that he's written a whole book about it. The book is called Perfect Motion, How Walking Makes Us Wiser, and it delves into everything from human history, philosophy, and some incredible personal stories of his own life. It's definitely not what I would have expected from a book about walking. Jono, welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Oh, thank you so much. What a great introduction. Well, you know, I I was thinking it might have been a little bit boring, I must admit. (laughs) I thought, what can you write about walking? But it seems you can write a lot. How did you come to be so interested in the history of walking and its impact on the human psyche, as opposed to just a form of exercise? Yeah, well, uh, that really goes back um, probably to, to the time when I was living in the Himalayas. And during that time, I... I've been living there for a few years and, and I was very familiar with the area and I spoke the language and I was really, I was really engaged with the culture and the people there. And I, I decided that I wanted to, I wanted to connect the different cultures and religions of the Himalayas by walking from Muslim Pakistan, the, the Himalayan area there, through the Buddhist areas in northern India and Tibet and across into the the Hindu pilgrimage sites uh, in North India. And so I started that walk and it was an absolutely incredible experience. Magic happened every day. And at the end of it, I realized that there was actually something much, much larger that was actually driving me to do this this crazy thing, a five-month solo walk through the Himalayas. And that was actually the coming to terms with the death of my younger brother. He died when he was 18 years old, and um, you know it took me it took me years and years to get over that. And and the walk I realized had become a catalyst for me to to refine my faith in humanity, in the future, and even in myself. And that was really that was also the catalyst then for me to think about what was it about walking that had had done that that it had such a profound psychological effect. I don't even know where you start once you've had that experience, but <laughs> let me, there's a, a sentence that you write in your introduction where you're basically laying it out to everyone, what the book's about. And you say, walking is a framework, a catalyst and a medium out of which human life on earth has evolved. Um, without you having to explain the whole book, can you unpack that a bit <laughs> for us? So, uh, catalyst, a medium, and a framework. So it's a catalyst in that it uh, gives you the ability to, to get outside yourself. The way that human beings have moved forward typically, the way that evolution actually works is that we, we, we think outside of the box. That's a cliche that we hear all the time. But the truth is to actually progress, to move forward, you have to have new ideas. And that's what homo sapiens do especially well on planet Earth. We come up with new ideas. To have new ideas, you can't think the same old way. And to think in new ways, 
You have to get out of that box. You actually have to get out of yourself in a way. You have to have literally an out-of-body experience. And I know this sounds crazy to people, but walking has the ability to do that, to give you an out-of-body experience. And that's why it's a catalyst. Now, it's a medium because walking is intrinsic to the way that we tell stories. Now, human beings typically for uh, at least the past 100,000 years have told stories, and that's been our major form of education, the primary form of education. It's not looking at spreadsheets. It's not listening to lectures. It's listening to stories and engaging with stories and then incorporating those stories into your life. Everybody knows that. The stories happen in the playground. The stories happen at home. The stories happen in school, but not necessarily in a lecture theater. Now, the most pervasive story structure in the world, the story that we can all, that we all connect with, and the story that actually incorporates so many other story structures, the love story, the comedy, the rags to riches tale, is the journey narrative. And that's because when human beings first found spoken language, it happened at about the same time that we, we attain what's called symbolic thought. And symbolic thought is the idea that you can perceive of something as more than what it initially presents. That's art. You know, art is, is paint on the wall or uh, a piece of stone. But we interpret it in very, very complex ways that move us emotionally. And that is also the start of story. So spoken language... Symbolic thought both happened at about the same time that Homo sapiens were forced out of East Africa about 90,000 years ago. And we spent the next 70,000 years walking around the globe and populating every corner of this planet. So the reason that we always fall back to the journey narrative is because it's part of us. It's part of our development, our evolution as human beings. And when we walk, when we go for a walk, we connect with that story. So it's a medium. Now, as a framework, how it works is that all of our stories have a start, a middle, and an end, right? That's the same way that a walk works. People think of their lives as a story. People think of, think of their lives as a journey. And when we go for a walk, we create that framework in miniature all the time. What does that do? It actually gives us confidence. Because as human beings, what do we want out of this life? We want a certain amount of control. We want to believe that we're in control of our lives and our events that are going on around us. Now, it's debatable how much control we actually have. But when we go for a walk, we actually do have control because we're being active in the world. We're initiating this activity that actually places us in a super positive mindset. So there you go, it's a framework also. Yeah, I think people have just a tiny hint there of how deep this book can go when we're talking about walking. <laughs> yeah. um, it's also kind of fun too, this book. I mean, my life is kind fun. of interesting. There's a lot of... Um, like I said, you, you weave a lot of uh, incredible personal stories in this. You just mentioned that you spent five months walking in the Himalayas, but you also worked for Médecins Sans Frontières in the Sierra Leone at a really challenging time in that country's history. And um, again, it's a big question, but do you think that experience changed you? Oh, you know, trauma. Trauma is another catalyst, right? Uh, and 
you know, everybody talks about post-traumatic stress disorder, right? I mean, that happens to first responders, military, all kinds of people around the world. People who have had traumatic events can have a post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also post-traumatic growth. And what that means is, is actually the vast majority of people who suffer traumatic events actually recover completely. And at the same time, they're able to use that traumatic event to frame their, their, their new life in a new way. Because trauma, in a lot of ways, can become a watershed moment in people's lives. And that's what Sierra Leone was for me in some ways. You know, I, you know I'd actually dreamt about working for an organization like Médecins Sans Frontières for, for, for decades. I mean, it's an incredible organization that does fantastic work. But I tell you, when you do the training there, you don't know what the hell you're getting into because it is full on, full on. And at the same time, the type of work that, that I was doing there, you saw, you saw results every day. You know, I'm, I'm a curator at the National Museum. I make exhibitions. And those exhibitions can take two or three years to create. They take a long time. I mean, they're amazing exhibitions. And it's incredible to watch people when they come through the door and they, they are moved emotionally by what, what goes on in the museum. But in Sierra Leone, I saw, I saw children recovering from malnutrition. I saw people uh, recovering from gunshot wounds. You know, I, I helped people out of hostage situations. And that happened immediately. And that's something that actually it changes you because you become, you become results-focused in a way. And uh, at the same time, you know, the Sierra Leone situation actually made me reconsider, reconsider my own lifestyle. I was a very, uh, well, I still am a very goal-oriented person. But after Sierra Leone, my goals were not, were not monetary. They were about community. They were about family. And they were about personal growth in a positive way. There's a lot of things, um, you know, we've mentioned there that some people might be thinking, wow, that this guy has done a lot in his life. And of course, you became a dad. I'm not sure at what point in your journey you had your children. Um, how does one go from those kinds of experiences to parenthood in possibly an urban environment? Wow. Uh, you know, I can talk about the trauma of losing my brother and I can talk about the trauma of working in civil wars, but you know what? Parenthood is traumatic. <laughs> I went, you know, I went from managing 300 people in uh, a conflict zone hospital environment to, to negotiating with two toddlers in a very short space of time. And I moved from, you know, I grew up in Canada. And then I moved to Australia with my wife. She grew up on the northern beaches in Sydney. And we moved to the south coast of New South Wales where I knew nobody, absolutely nobody. And, you know, I used to say that my best conversation of the week was with the checkout lady at Woolies. Because no one, no one knew me and nobody was talking to me. But I'm a pretty conversational kind of guy. And I was talking, like, these kids were, you know, they were pretty verbal. And I was just bantering on at them and of course nothing was coming back so it was it was a huge huge change to go from you know a high-flying humanitarian relief worker to a stay-at-home dad and I was a stay-at-home dad for four years but I always say that that was probably the best job 
in my life. You know, it was a job that was driven out of love because, you know, these two boys are unbelievable. You know, they are amazing young men. And um, I was gifted. I was gifted with spending four really important years together with them at life in their, in their early lives. And, um, you know, maybe they grew sick of me, <laughs> but I tell you, you know, they're both now teenagers, believe it or not. And, you know, we still have, we still have a great relationship. We have a lot of fun, you know, and that's what childhood is about. It's about having fun. Now I will say also getting back to walking, I think that walking saved my ass, you know, that's the truth of it because when we get stressed at home or at work, you know, things aren't working out. What do we always say? We say, oh, I got to clear my head. But actually, well, that's code for, I got to go for a walk. So human beings, we know that by going for a walk, we will shift our perspective, most likely for the positive. And that's what happened to me as, as a young parent. You know, my wife was working full time. She's a doctor. Like, you know, she would come home. I, I had dinner made for her. And, you know, during the day, those kids, they could drive me crazy. And what did we do? We either put them in the baby Bjorn or we got in the pram and we just started walking. And they loved it and I loved it. And there was a symbiosis there, you know, because they could feel that my, my energy was relaxing and, and consequently their energy was relaxing. And we still go out for, we still go out walking together. And my best conversations with my teenage kids or when we're out for a walk. Just going back a step to, uh, I guess, thinking about that self-reflection that you had, the time for self-reflection you had when you were walking the Himalayas or even when you were um, working in Sierra Leone and were probably focused outward in terms of a big picture and helping people. It seems to me that when you become a parent, particularly a stay-at-home parent, things intensify on a really tiny scale. So you, are, you have the challenge of, of keeping them dry and fed, but there are also long stretches of boredom that aren't particularly, that, that aren't broken up by the beautiful vistas of the Himalayan mountains or <laughs> some interesting meal at a roadside monastery or something, or, or even, you know, the distraction of a new culture. You are very, very focused on that domestic sphere. I mean, is that part of the challenge or could you how did you see that time because it can be I think mentally that is one of the hardest things about shifting to parenthood after you've been able to do all these things um, you do have a really important job but in many ways it's it's really focused down yeah, well that that is a really good question thank you for that because you're absolutely right the focus turns completely inward and uh, you get this, you get this contraction in your life from that huge association with friends and new experiences to an absolute routine that is concentrated in a very small physical space, which can be the bedroom and the house and then maybe the garden. And for me, that was very, very challenging because, you know, I've been a wanderer all my life. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't settle down until I was in my 40s. And uh, having kids at that point was, was really difficult. Um, again, I will say that walking, walking was my savior because walking has this ability to, to, again, take you out of yourself in a way. You know, when you go for a walk, 
some really incredible uh, physiological things happen uh, on a biochemical level. Number one is that you have a different flow of neurotransmitters coming into your brain after only about five minutes. And those neurotransmitters actually open you up. They give you a more spacious and open mindset. And after about 10 minutes, then your neuroelectrical level starts to drop down. And you actually, after, after 15 minutes, when you're walking on your own, you're actually in the same neuroelectrical level that you're in when you're, when you're meditating. And then after 30 to 40 minutes, then your prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain that's your executive functioning area, the area of the brain that makes you do things starts to slow down. And when that happens, because because the prefrontal cortex is, is the part of the brain that actually gives you your sense of self, when it slows down, you lose your sense of self. And that's really important when you're in a stressful situation like that, because it lets you leave that situation, you know? And it's, it's so easy, unfortunately, for parents to get in that situation where they can blame the kids. You know, I'm, I'm trapped here. I mean, how often do you hear parents say that? And they never want to say that, but they feel it, you know, and a way to get out of that feeling of constriction and extreme attachment is to go for a walk and lose yourself in that process. Now, I know that sounds a bit scary, losing yourself, but it's actually, uh, you know, it's much better than drinking a bottle of wine because you are still <laughs> in control. If you're you still in control. You know, you're losing you can't drink yourself wine and walk. <laughs> well, some of my best walks have maybe involved a glass or two of water. That's true. <laughs> well, Jono, I'm sorry to wrap it up, but unfortunately, I, I do have to leave it there. But there's a lot more in the book that people can explore. Thank you so much for your time today. No, what a pleasure. That was, there were some great questions there. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's Jono Lanine. He's the author of Perfect Motion, How Walking Makes Us Wiser. For more information about the book, check out the notes from this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.